You're listening to the Skeptic's Guide to the Universe, your escape to reality. Hello and welcome to the Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. Today is Wednesday, November 18th, 2009, and this is your host, Stephen Novella. Joining me this week are Bob Novella. Hey, everybody. Rebecca Watson. Hello, everyone. Jay Novella. Hey, guys. And Evan Bernstein. Hey, everyone. November 18th. Hello. Hello. November 18th, 1970. Nobel Prize winner Linus Pauling declared on this day that large doses of vitamin C could ward off the common cold. Oh, oh yeah. boy. How'd that work out for him? Yeah. Don't stray from your specialty. <laughs> yeah, I think he did better things in his time. And it says, although the medical establishment immediately voiced their strong opposition to the idea, many ordinary people believed Dr. Pauling and began taking large amounts of vitamin C. And still do today. It's amazing how we associate vitamin C with health or with the common cold. I mean, every time I think about vitamin C, it's the first thing that pops into my mind is that it's a cure for the common cold. And I know it's BS. So that's the birth of it then, this uh, this event. Yeah, that meme got in the culture and that was it. 30 years later, the evidence is resoundingly negative. Uh, in fact, if you do overdo the vitamin C, it's been associated with increased risk of heart disease. Uh-oh. Yeah, but usually you just piss it out, right? Yeah, if you take more vitamin C than your body can really absorb and use, it gets excreted in your urine because it's not fat-soluble. It's a water-soluble vitamin, right? Now, just because, the, because it was Dr. Pauling, that's why I imagine so many people took it to heart and took it as, well, otherwise fact. Argument from authority. His history, right. right argument from authority. One of the biggest news items this past week is about mammography. You wouldn't think that this would spark up a raging controversy, but somehow it has. Yeah, it has. What the F? It's got people all tingly and on edge, you know. I'm very (laughs) upset about this. It's it's boobies. Boobies tend to do that. Yeah, I I saw it on, I read a lot of feminist blogs, and I, I saw it mentioned on a few in a way that really surprised me, because, so, the basic thing that happened is that a, a government task force came out with new guidelines for breast cancer screening, suggesting that women should wait until their 50s to get screened for breast cancer, as opposed to the previous guidelines, which had said that people, that women should start in their 40s. Um, these new guidelines suggested the 50s, saying that um, women who went for screenings in their 40s, it didn't really improve your chances of um, survival. In fact, it would only increase your chances of getting a false positive, meaning that the doctor would think that you have cancer when you don't, which is, I don't, I don't know if anybody's ever been told that they have cancer when they don't have it, but it's probably kind of um, stressful. Yeah, probably not a lot of fun. Yeah, and, and also you have to go through a lot of needless procedures when that happens that can actually be dangerous for your health. So what this task force found was that um, it's better for women if they wait until their 50s. They're more likely to catch cancer in time to save their lives, but not go through all the um, the, the terrible procedures of, of dealing with a, a false positive. That's if they don't so, have a family history of it, Rebecca, right? Well, yeah, not just family history, but what, what was suggested by the task force was that, well, they state outright that it should be up to the individual, that you should talk to your doctor and find out what's best for you. But they specifically mentioned that, you know, if you have the genes uh, that are known to, uh, to to cause breast cancer, in that case, then, yeah, you should, you should start early. That's uh, Those people weren't considered. So that's all, that's all correct, but let, let me amplify a few things. Just to clarify, this is the United States Preventive, Preventative Services Task Force, or the USPSTF, not a great acronym. And this 
they made a series of recommendations, actually. And what, Rebecca, what you've been referring to is their recommendations for routine screening in low-risk, asymptomatic women. Very specific, right? So as you said, right. if, if you're in a high-risk group because you have a family history, you have genes that put you at a higher risk, you've had cancer or a lump before, anything that puts you in a higher-risk group, the, that recommendation of starting at 50 instead of at 40 would not apply to you. That would put you in a group that would require more screening. They also changed the recommendation um, from annual to biennial to one test every two years rather than every year. Uh, this is based upon some recent evidence that suggests that the, that the benefits are the same for getting it every two years, but you essentially half the number of false positives and unnecessary biopsies and procedures. And in fact, this just brings the, um, the U.S. recommendations in line with what's already been fairly standard in Europe. So it's not like this is a, a new or unusual thing. Well, how's it been, how has it been working out in Europe? Well, you know, this is all epidemiology, right? And, and essentially what this comes down to is where do you draw the line in screening large populations in terms of the trade-off between the discomfort of a procedure, maybe the small risks associated with the procedure, the risk of a false positive, and then all the procedures that flow from a false positive, such as biopsy, maybe even excision, um, and you know, in, in rare cases, even treatment for something that never would have bothered that person if you didn't go looking for it, versus the reduced um, mortality from the disease and maybe uh, less invasive treatment for cancer because it's detected earlier. Right, because this, this also includes um, doctors discovering lumps that are so small that they would never actually develop into breast cancer. That's right. Uh, just to make it clear what you were talking about before, yeah. Yeah, so there's no totally objective place to, to draw that line. You you have to look at all the evidence and and decide, well, you know, you weigh the two things on both sides of the scale, and then you make some kind of a judgment call, and that's what the, the USPSTF is doing. This doesn't overnight change the standard of care because there's lots of other organizations like the American Cancer Society, et cetera, that are not on board with these recommendations. This is just this one task force recommendations. And you would have to screen essentially 1,600 women between the age of 40 and 50 to, to prevent one death. But you're going to cause hundreds of, of, of biopsies that are going to be negative. So is that worth it? Is it not worth it? I don't, well, you, you can have that conversation with your patient and then decide. Well, and the, and the problem is from a patient's standpoint is that statistically it's difficult to really understand that it might be better for your life if you don't go to the doctor and have every test you can run. Mm-hmm. It seems from a patient standpoint that if there's a test that might possibly detect something, I should go as soon as I can. Right. But this isn't quite correct. Um, and, and so it's, it's difficult not having that understanding of statistics and, and of the, the medical side of things for, for people to really get that. Yeah, it seems counterintuitive unless you're you know, aware of the, the risks of false positives and the fact that doing stuff medically ha- has some risks. The fi- the, and talk about counterintuitive, the, another bit of their recommendations was they recommended against teaching self-breast exam. Yeah, Basically, women one. doing self-breast exam in order to detect lumps early. Well, actually, that's been uh, that's been brewing for a while. And yeah. In fact, the um, you mentioned that the American Cancer Society still suggests um, that you start 
doing exams, uh, regular screening from 40 and up. But they, for a long time now, have recommended against self-exams because of that same thing, of, of false positives. And with self-breast exam, it's also it just doesn't work. It's not only is it just, again, the really? false positive rate, it doesn't reduce mortality from breast cancer. So just unfortunately, it'd be nice if it did work, but it just doesn't work. But, but to be clear, of course, if you detect a lump or any change in your breast, you should bring it immediately to the attention of your physician. This right. is not to say that you should ignore changes that you notice. It's just that doing a regular routine self-breast exam doesn't appear to be, to be of any benefit. Wow. And that's what I think the good thing about these guidelines is, is that they do specifically say that it's up to the individual, that the individual needs to speak with their medical professional and discuss what's right for them. And uh, that that's why I, end, I ended up blogging about this, because some some blogs took this way out of proportion, <laughs> and they reacted in a really negative way, because it seems so counterintuitive to suggest that you put off regular screenings. Uh, a few blogs immediately assumed that this was some sort of doctors trying to save money for insurance companies or um, trying to tell women what they should and shouldn't worry about um, and, and basically calling it a condescending, patronizing move on the part of medical professionals. Or misogynistic, that we don't care about women. Is the self-examination not working because women don't know how to do it properly or that is just not the, the right way to test for breast cancer? What it basically means is that uh, there's no advantage to teaching women to do a formalized self-breast exam. That in essence, uh, the, the switch now is to, to emphasize in women breast awareness. Just be aware of your breasts, what they feel like, what they look like. If you notice anything new, in the shower or whatever, that has as much you know, sensitivity in picking up new problems as doing the self-breast exam. So you know, teaching the exam doesn't have any advantage, but still the recommendation is to, be, to have quote-unquote breast awareness and to present any changes to your physician. Now, who gets to teach them this? And how do you get that job? Uh, federal, bre <laughs> federal breast inspectors, FBI. Yeah, I was about to say, you want one of those T-shirts to say federal breast in investigators. <laughs> okay, and then everybody right. will know what a douchebag you are so they can avoid you. Okay. Right. Sorry, never mind. Uh, douchebag is so, a, a different department, though. So the point is um, <laughs> that there, there was a, a bit of a backlash toward, toward this announcement that was completely undeserved. And um, I think it feeds into that, that sort of inherent distrust of the medical establishment and this belief that doctors will immediately try to do something that harms women, when in fact, in this case, it actually helps them. And I mean, on one blog I saw that I read quite regularly and tends to be pretty smart and with it, the, the first response to this posting of this article was, who came up with this? I bet it was a bunch of men. And it's like, sure. no, actually, the the vice chair quoted in the article linked to is a woman, <laughs> and eight of the 16 people on the panel are women. Um, yeah. And also, FYI, their data is correct, and that's that's what's important. God, that, that statement is sick on so many levels. First it's of all, the person that said that it implies that they just think that men hate women, or male doctors like have no regard for women whatsoever. It's ridiculous. We have mothers, wives, sisters, and daughters. You know, right? It's yeah. It's not men hate women. It's it's more this distrust of the medical industry, which which is built upon you know probably 
the past few centuries of you know the medical establishment kind of giving women the shaft in a way. Yeah, maybe 50 years ago you'd have a point. I mean, it was definitely a paternalistic profession, but you know, women are definitely the rising force within healthcare, and they're as you say, they're completely integrated into this kind of thing. So that that's just not an issue here. This is just a dry assessment of epidemiological data, and you know, looking at. And trying to figure out where to draw the line and, and emotionalizing it uh, was completely inappropriate. Right. As it's, you're it's not. I, I don't mean to imply that it's an issue in in whatever has been drafted by this panel. I mean that's feeding into yeah. the distrust of the medical establishment. That's all. And and so I think it's important to like you know I, I did a post about it and actually the the blog readers on um, on feministing where I first saw the this article. Um, the commenters immediately rose up and and pretty much gave the original poster a beat down using scientific fact and saying, you know what, actually this is for the good of women's health, not any sort of misogyny that's happening. Yeah, I would think that women would be happy. They don't have to get as many mammographies. They're not pleasant from what I understand. Well, yeah, and that's that's what most of the, the responses were. And so that it was it was actually very, it was a big relief on my part to see a lot of women stand up and say, actually, no, this is a good thing. So I do imagine that there'll be some back and forth, and not just mm-hmm. from uh, from lay people, but from doctors. I've heard that there's a bit of backlash from, from doctors who don't agree with the new uh, regulations or the new recommendations. Yeah, so there's a, there's a perfectly legitimate scientific medical discussion about, again, where to draw this line. Uh, in, in terms of where, what's the where to get the maximum value for the least amount of risk out of screening, and and that conversation has been happening. This is just one salvo in that conversation. It's happening in parallel in Europe and other countries as well, and the, the, we're drawing the lines in slightly different places. Again, this is actually just moving the U.S. more in in line with what the average recommendations are in other countries. Yeah, the and, World Health Organization has been stipulating that yeah. it's over 50 for a long time now. So. And then there's this really side distraction of just you know people looking for a conspiracy, as you say, and just there's sort of a gut distrust of something that seems superficially counterintuitive, but really doesn't have anything to do with what's what's actually going on here. So, Rebecca, would you would you change when you get your test done? Yeah. Speaking as a woman, I'd be, I'd be perfectly happy waiting until I'm 50. Speaking as a woman with no risk factors, yeah. Yeah, right. Right. Uh, one final note, David Gorski, who is actually a breast cancer surgeon, wrote an excellent uh, blog post on this on science-based medicine, in addition to Rebecca's, of course, on the Skeptic blog. So if you want to read more about this, I will link to those two blogs. Uh, the next news item that actually quite exciting this past week, some follow-up from the member crashing the satellite into the moon to look for water. Mm-hmm. I well, do. It, it turns out they found some. Yeah, they found quite a bit. Well, they splashed down, but they found water. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this is the L cross. Actually, there, uh, there was some discussion about whether or not it was L cross or lacrosse. Some somebody emailed us and said it was L cross. I I call it LC Ross. LC so. <laughs> <LC> Ross. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's the closest correct way. I, I go with L cross. It sounds better, so that's what matters. Yeah, well, lacrosse is an actual word. Anyway, <laughs> so <laughs> they found the equivalent of. Uh, a dozen two-gallon buckets of water in the plume from the satellite that crashed into the crater uh, and the near, I guess it was near the south pole of the moon. So the the thinking here, of course, is that icy comets crash on the moon 
and some of the water from those comets may have survived as permanent ice in the shadows of craters yeah. along the south pole of the moon. Permanently that, shaded That's craters. in permanent shadow, right? So for billi- per- now for billions of years, right, Steve? I mean, millions, hundreds of millions, you know, a long time. A week, whatever it takes. <laughs> and Cosmic week. Of course, now, finding a significant amount of water on the moon would be a boon to a future moon base because water's heavy and, you know, bringing mass up from the Earth to the moon is a significant investment. I would, it costs money and, and fuel, etc. So if, they, if there's a lot of water on the moon, that could serve as a source of, well, first of all, water. Um, you can also make oxygen from that water. And you Hydrogen can also fuel. make fuel. Yeah. So it would be a huge resource. This confirms that, yeah, in, in these permanently shadowed craters, there's in fact a significant amount of water. And this, of course, this is, again, a, a, a very positive thing in terms of the prospects of future moon base or moon exploration. Steve, I also remember reading, and I mentioned this on an earlier show, that they found a way to extract oxygen from the moon rocks. Is that something you dreamed about, Jay? Yeah, that's, uh, that's <laughs> correct, Jay. Uh, there's actually a lot of oxygen in the regolith of the moon. Uh, by some estimates, half of the regolith is actually comprised of oxygen. This is all in the form of oxides, you know, oxygen bound to other compounds. The most common is silicon dioxide, uh, which is like, they quote-unquote, like beach sand, uh, as NASA reports. But there's also uh, oxides of calcium, iron, magnesium, and that all adds up to about 43% of the mass of the lunar regolith. Uh, the trick is to, is to extracting it, you know, is what processes we can use to extract it efficiently. Well, speaking of how much, I, haven't, I didn't come across any estimates or extrapolations as to how much water there might be on the moon. I mean, is it really, is there enough to, to you know, to, that would really save a lot of, you know, a lot of launches of water from the earth? Or it, maybe there's a lot, but it'd be, would it be difficult to extract? I, had, I didn't come across anything like that. I, yeah, me neither. I, I was looking for that. I haven't seen any, yeah. any specific assessment of that. They were just wanted to know, is the water there? Yes, right. it's there. Right. And Next I guess they, they have to go from there, right? So I guess it, it warrants further evaluation. But, you know, I suspect if it's there, I mean, I, I, it's probably significant. If they were able to just you know, randomly crash a satellite into a, into a crater and in the plume they found a significant amount of water, I imagine – that means there's quite a bit of water in, in those craters. And it was super, it was on the surface, right? It was superficial enough that it was in the plume. Right. It's not like it's buried deep under the regolith. So I, I, don't, I think it'll probably be pretty easy to get to, I would imagine. I mean, we can't build a moon base quick enough. Yeah. Now it's really just a matter of money. You know, we have the technology, yeah. basically. We have the yeah. technology. We have no money. Right. <laughs> ten, ten years ago, it was 1999. And space 1999. What the hell happened, man? <laughs> Yeah, and did yeah. you guys see the most recent Doctor Who? No. No. Water those, on Mars? Yeah, Scary. all those movies about the future and, you know, 1984, 2010, even 2001, none of them held true to their ambitions, I think. And Evan, the overall thing is that science moved a lot slower than they predicted, right? Well, yeah. as I'm sure we've noted before, there's a general observation that futurists grossly overestimate short-term scientific progress, right. but then tend to underestimate long-term progress. Right. 
And I think that's to give the reader or the viewer or whatever a sense that uh, the, the deliberate sense that we're actually closer than, than we actually are to these things. Maybe they feel more a part of it or somehow can empathize a little more with the characters of the story, knowing it's right around the corner, as opposed to 300 or 500 years in the future. I'll believe mm. it when 2012 comes true. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> we're getting there. All right. <laughs> foreshadowing. <laughs> Bob, t- hurry up. Tell us about the dark flow at the edge of the universe. Whoa. Yeah, this is this is pretty interesting. It had some some pretty amazing ramifications if it if it all comes true. Recently, the results of an analysis of galactic clusters have led some scientists to actually suggest that another universe outside of ours could potentially be having an impact on our own universe. Uh, so needless to say, that kind of that got my attention when I saw that article. So I uh, did some research on it, and it turns out that uh, uh, last year – I wasn't too familiar with this, but last year, Alexander uh, Kislinski at NASA's Goddard Space Flight Center, he led a group that did a study about um, – they studied about 800 distant clusters of galaxies. Galaxy clusters are just what they, what they seem to be, collections of – uh, hundreds or even thousands of galaxies bound together gravitationally. And he found, his team found some weird, unexpected uniform motion in these, in these clusters that, uh, that was a big surprise. And this motion was independent of the universe's expansion and the distance. Alexander said that we never expected to find anything like this. Uh, and he also said the distribution of matter in the observed universe cannot account for this motion. So it was quite a puzzle. A lot of people were skeptical. He dubbed this phenomenon dark flow, obviously making a, a connection to dark matter and dark energy, although there's no direct link between the ideas. It's just the idea that uh, by dark, you know, it's mysterious. You know, we're just Unknown. not sure what yeah. the hell is going on there. The idea then is that there's something outside our observable universe causing this dark flow. Now, the universe has three special regions. Try to think of it this way. This is what helps me. The first region is the visible universe, and that's everything, everything that we could see that has had time for the light to reach us, essentially. The farthest in the past we could then see is when photons actually started zipping around the, the universe, uh, when the universe stopped being opaque at a point called uh, photon decoupling or... Uh, the surface of last scattering, that was essentially when the uh, cosmic microwave background radiation uh, was unleashed into the, into the universe. Which is what gave us static on the TV. And what was that, about, <laughs> yeah, about <there> <laughs> 2 million years after the Big Bang, Bob? No, about 380,000 years 380, after, okay. after oh. the Big Bang, about 13.3 or so billion years ago. Therefore, the, the things that emitted light 13.3 billion years ago – They've continued moving away from us, obviously, right? They they emitted the light a long, long time ago, but they're still they still exist somewhere out there, far away, and they're emitting that light. But th- the light that they emit now is simply too far away for the light to have reached us. So if you're an object in that region, I just call that I call that region two. The that's the observable universe. Now region two, then there's nothing preventing that light from eventually reaching us. It's just that we have to wait. You know, the light is kind of on its way and. Beyond three, though, beyond this region three, um, I'm going to call that the faster-than-light zone or, or dark zone. I guess maybe dark zone might be more appropriate. Now, this is the part of the universe that can never directly communicate with us because the expansion of space at that distance moves everything away from us at faster than the speed of light. We can never, ever get there, uh, and nor can we ever peer through that veil and kind of see what's going on because we can't travel faster than the speed of light. That's the bottom line. So this place is permanently inaccessible to us. And this is where the th- that thing is, this dark thing is, 
that seems to be causing the flow. So it's in our universe, just not in the part that we can see. Potentially, you know, if you were 13 or if you were many billions of light years away, this area might not be – it might be within your visible universe potentially. I yeah, so if you were, uh, say, 10 or 20 billion light years from where right. we are now, you're still in our visible universe, but your visible universe is centered on you. Right. Right. So it's absolutely. So this is something in in the visible universe of the distant regions of our visible universe, but not in our own visible universe. If that makes sense. So it's it's in our universe. It could be affecting stuff that we see, even though it can't affect us directly. Right. That, that's that's the bottom line. Now the latest. Now this was a year ago. Now what I've been talking about is pretty much year old news. But now. Most recently, they did another survey of, of clusters. This time, instead of 800 superclusters, they looked at 1,400 of them. The anomalous flow was still there, even though, they, even though they've examined so many more clusters. And not only that, this was pretty interesting. They found this flow extends at least up to 3 billion light years away from Earth. So this kind of – this effect is really propagating across a good chunk of – a good chunk of the universe. So, all right. So, what the hell is this? What's causing this? Well, you know, what are some of the theories being thrown around? Now, the, the knee-jerk response or the knee-jerk answer is obviously, to me anyway, that it's just oh, there's got to be a huge chunk of matter, right? There's this huge gravitational well out there that's just pulling this stuff in. And so, but surprisingly, uh, scientists think this is unlikely the cause because ultimately cosmic structures that should have been randomly seeded in the early universe due to random quantum fluctuations. Now, this would spread out matter relatively evenly, evenly over large scales without any huge collections of it in one place. So they think this is unlikely. Another interesting possibility, this one took me by surprise, was that the dark flow is being created by the fluctuations of an unknown energy field. It's not like there's no precedent for this because you guys have heard of inflation uh, soon after the Big Bang. There was this period of super rapid uh, inflation uh, that yeah. expanded, expanded the universe incredibly fast. That in inflation was caused by some mysterious energy field, and they, scientists really don't know what the hell that really was about. So perhaps there was a, another additional small energy field that, that inflation kind of expanded to a huge size, and somehow this new energy field or this remnant fluctuation of this energy field is somehow causing this asymmetry in uh in the universe and that's to me that's also extremely in interesting if it turns out to be the case because one of the big assumptions uh for decades now is that the universe is isotropic uh that it's the same in pretty much every direction you look if this possibility turns out to be true then it would show that that assumption is incorrect and who knows what impact this would have on on, on a lot of the theories that we've come up with now the final possible explanation for dark flow that I came across is definitely the most outrageous. Laura Mersini Houghton of the University of North Carolina, she believes that a neighboring universe could be causing the flow. She says that if the quantum vacuum nothingness, whatever it was, that inflated to become our universe was somehow quantumly entangled with another similar type of patch of nothingness, vacuum, whatever it was, uh, that somehow this entanglement can be responsible for the force this odd force being exerted uh, between these two universes. But now, of course, there is the skeptics. Damn those guys. Dr. Charles Bennett is an astrophysicist and principal investigator of the um, anisotropy probe that's uh, been mapping the cosmic background radiation. Now, this surprised me. He doesn't just doubt the, that this other universe hypothesis. He doubts 
even that there's a flow at all. He said that there's no evidence for the large-scale dark flow using all of the best data available. Mm-hmm. So I, I don't know what the hell to think of this now. I mean, this guy, this expert, I mean, this guy's no uh, slouch. So it's controversial. No. He's Yeah, this guy's no slouch. He, he says that he can't even quite believe that there's even a dark flow at all based on all the best data. So granted, it's very subtle. And they did have to come up with some new ideas in order to detect it, and maybe that's what he's critiquing here. But uh, but still, keep your eyes uh, peeled for this one because it, this could be interesting if something uh, turns up. Yeah, so it's, it's one of those things. I guess we're just gonna have to wait, you know, for for the right. uh, for more data for the science to be settled. And right now, it's just a possibility you know, based upon these observations. I mean, the fact that it's been at least re- replicated once yes. with a larger data set is interesting. Very interesting. Uh, it means we, you know, should be taken seriously, but you know, not not changing the textbooks yet. No, as usual, we'll see what happens. Right. Have you guys ever seen that? Uh, what I, I think is a pretty iconic picture of oh, yeah. Lee Harvey Oswald holding the rifle that was used to assassinate JFK, and some newspapers, which actually turned out were, were um, communist. You know, propaganda papers. Well, yeah, I think that's probably the second most famous photograph of him after, of course, the picture of him being shot. Yeah. Yes, I uh, agree. Yeah, that's right. classic. That's definitely iconic. The photo you're talking about, Steve, was uh, appeared on the cover of Life magazine. Uh, February 1964 is when the uh, picture made the, made the cover of Life. And a few weeks later, it was... Uh, well, sh- soon after that, it, it, it appeared in newspapers and other magazines elsewhere. And yeah, the but it was totally with, mocked up by the communists or something, right? All right. So the back, <laughs> so, so the backstory is this, right? So you have Lee Harvey Oswald, and supposedly this photograph was taken in the spring of 1963 by his wife Maria, uh, Marina, and it appeared on the cover of Life, Ma- Life magazine after the assassination took place. And within days, like I said, other publications picked it up and and put it in their magazines and uh, newspapers and so forth. But in a version that ran in the Detroit Free Press about two weeks after it initially came out on the Life magazine cover, the sniper scope on the rifle appeared to be gone. Mm-hmm. So what happened to the photo? Well, it is it is assumed by, uh, by JFK assassination conspiracy theorists that the photograph was, in fact, doctored. They also believe that that's the case because apparently Oswald... At, at some point when he was uh, interviewed, when he was shown the photo while he was in jail, he claimed he had never seen it before and insisted that someone else superimposed his head onto another body. Mm-hmm. Right? So another piece of the puzzle. So it must be a, a, a forgery, a fake. You know, it was put together by those, by those who were pinning Oswald as the lone patsy. The man the CIA. To, take the, to take the fall, the CIA or, or the whomev- whomever. Although the photograph was bantered about, you know, for many years and claimed to be fake, historians looked at it, they analyzed it, they had film experts at the time in the 60s and the 70s look at it and they say, no, the photograph appears to be real, there's, there's no evidence of tampering, there's no evidence of fakery, there's just some shadowing effects going on, you can't, why well, you can't see the scope in this picture as opposed to that picture. And the conspiracy theorists came back and said, yeah, but look at the shadows behind his head, and they don't match up, and the lighting is not correct. There's too many discrepancies, too many inconsistencies within the picture, so it must be uh, a a fake. So very recently, uh, a fellow by the name of Hani Farid, 
a computer science professor and an expert in digital forensics from from Dartmouth College. He spent two months recently evaluating that photograph and pretty much put the controversy to bed and said that, no, this was not doctored at all. This is an authentic photograph. And, you know, anyone who's still clinging on to this as part of the conspiracy can, you know, can stop, stop, just stop it now. (laughs) Yeah, like that's going to (laughs) happen. How does this prove that it was just Lee Harvey Oswald? So it's a picture of him with a gun. Picture of him holding a rifle, supposedly the rifle that he shot, that he, that he used to shoot JFK. And but how does that mm-hmm. prove there were other people? It doesn't. It just it just takes away this one piece of evidence that conspiracy theorists were using to say that it was evidence of a conspiracy. Again, what they uh. were doing was anomaly hunting, right? What uh, Farid said was it, it is highly improbable that anyone could have created such a perfect forgery with the technology available at 19, in 1963. And he used, uh, as everyone was saying, the statistical analysis of the pixels, because if you if you manipulate a photograph, that creates statistical inconsistencies in the underlying pixels, um, improbable lighting and shadow, etc. And uh, that, especially with older technology, again, like what was available in '63, our modern techniques would definitely detect the forgery. So the picture is real. It, it's more evidence for Oswald as the shooter, and it it cannot be used as evidence that there was a conspiracy. Which, of course, you know, if the photo were faked, that would be huge evidence that there was some cover-up happening, right? Yeah, that would have been big. Yeah, that that would actually be a a pretty significant piece of evidence, but it's it's just not. Uh, Well, it's a couple of of recent movies uh, that we'd like to review for you very quickly. I know, Evan and Rebecca, you both saw 2012. It was about what I expected out of the movie. You know, great effects, which is primarily the reason you go to see a movie like this. You know, the effects were spectacular. The characters were one-dimensional. The story was ridiculous. <laughs> the, and and campy, even campy at times, if I might say. The, the only thing I think that surprised me about the movie to pertain to you know the whole 2012 culture and mythology and so forth is that they really didn't say much about the Mayans and the Mayan yeah. calendar and so forth. They didn't harp on that. You know, it was mentioned once or twice as like a single line of dialogue, and then you know moved moved on. It really they really good, did not stress the whole Mayan aspect of it. Yeah, yeah it's so funny. I, that, I I thought the exact same thing. I I loved it because <laughs> I just the only reason I wanted to go was to see like several billion people die in a horrific manner and I really enjoy that so uh, that was definitely satisfied um, it was wonderful in that respect but yeah I was I was really interested to see how they would treat the pseudoscience part of it and whether it would you know make my my blood boil but yeah it was literally like oh my god the earth is totally freaking out yeah you know the Mayans totally predicted something like this oh my god a volcano ah! They just glossed over it. It's like, yeah, it's like it was. There's no real way that this movie could possibly encourage or confirm anyone's ridiculous conspiracy theories or pseudoscientific beliefs because it's so ridiculous and those those bits are so lost amidst all the special effects that I don't think anybody would really care. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
So what happened? I mean, what caused the, everything to collapse in on itself? Oh, well, I'm glad you asked. Um, <laughs> the reason why uh, the world is ending, which is explained pretty near the beginning, so I don't think this is much of a spoiler. See, the sun is starting to act up, and there are more solar flares. And the sun begins sending out these bursts of neutrinos, and normally, the film admits, neutrinos do not interact with matter, but in this case, they begin um, microwaving somehow the center of the Earth. Uh, the core of the Earth begins heating up because suddenly the neutrinos are interacting with the matter. You mean and hotter than it already is? Because it's basically... Yeah, yeah no, 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 no. Yeah. Like, really, like... Like boiling. super hot. Yeah, okay. <laughs> yeah. That, that, that's just uh, so whacked. That's just so it, whacked. No, it's, it's completely ridiculous. It's so funny the way that they gloss over. They're like, yeah, apparently the neutrinos are interacting with the matter. Oh, really? Oh, yeah. Wow, that sucks. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> They're not well, supposed to do that. Just the idea that they can turn into, you know, uh, microwave electromagnetic radiation is just so, so beyond, right. beyond bizarre. But they uh, might what as the well hell? have said something like, well, you know how people, when they touch water, normally they just get wet? Well, it turns out that now they explode. Yeah. Right. That's about <laughs> all the explosions. And the whole audience is just like, Rebecca, yeah, okay, sure. Do you, yeah. do you remember what triggered the, the enormous solar flares? Do you remember? A trigger? Alignment of the planets. Oh, right, right, right. But that was glossed oh, yeah. over as well. That was just was it? like a real quick thing, like... Yes, and it wasn't even at the beginning. It was mentioned later on. Well, apparently there's this alignment of the planet, but anyway, and and then they just kept moving. So the the other movie that was out recently that I'd like to chat about just very quickly is uh, the movie version of The Men Who Stare at Goats, the uh, based upon the book by John Ronson, who we actually interviewed in the spring. And he was on the show a few weeks ago in the yes. Tan London. Yeah, he was, audio. He, yeah. He was on Tan. Yeah, the, uh, you interviewed him in Tan London. You chatted about it briefly. So I mm-hmm. saw I saw the movie. And I liked it um, as a movie. You know, I thought that uh, <laughs> not as a book, though, right? No, I mean, I mean little, I like just, just not as not as a dessert, yeah, item, right? Meaning, or as a boat. If you, you could ask, like, the question: Was it faithful to the book? Was it a good skeptical movie, or just was it an entertaining movie? Did I enjoy sitting in the theater watching it? I enjoyed watching it. I thought it was funny. Yeah. It w- it was a good movie. You know, I think they Hollywoodized a lot of the uh, the story that I obviously would have been more hard hitting and skeptical if they had kept it more um, true to the book. It could have been a much more intelligent movie, and I think they missed some opportunities there. So it was disappointing yeah. in some ways. I, I agree, and and I, I think also that the the real appeal and and anybody who's listening to this who hasn't read John's book, The Men Who Stare Goats, go out and buy it because it's brilliant. Yeah. The book was much better. I mean, I definitely would say that. The thing that makes John's writing so brilliant is the fact that you really identify with John. He's this um, he's this wonderful character in and of itself, uh, in and of himself, because he he goes out and he has this genuine curiosity about the world and about people, and he wants to befriend people. But with I, th- I feel like you and McGregor really dropped the ball on that. You and McGregor was not. Uh, nearly as lovable or nebbish. I, I, I will say that the, the book was strangely able to appeal to skeptics and believers at the same time. And I, I think the movie actually captured that. So while I was watching the movie, I was thinking, you know, as a skeptic, you can interpret everything that happens in the movie as from a skeptical point of view. Right. Right. In other words, when they, they're, when they think 
or, or presenting paranormal stuff as happening, it's easy to perceive it as just being either a con or self-delusion. But I could also see, if I sort of stepped out of myself and said, if I were watching this movie as a true believer, you also could see it as that there's like this subtle reality to the paranormal behind the scenes going on at the same time as well. So you, I could see how a believer would, would enjoy the movie as well as a skeptic, and I thought that kind of captured that same, I guess, intent as the book did. That's true. It's hard for me not to compare it to the books because right. the books are so yeah, good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I, I discipline myself not to compare movies to books because you will always be disappointed. Just take the yeah, movie for what for it Lord is. Except for Lord of the Rings. No, I, even especially Lord of the Rings. Lord of the Rings was... No, the no, movie no. was the movie. For, you, no way. The books are boring as shit. You have man. to... What? Oh, no. Cut, oh that, cut that out, God. Steve. Just, just delete that when you uh, do post-production. Rebecca, you are really... You just... You know what? That's it. You can't talk for 10 minutes. <laughs> do you know how many emails we're going to get out. now? I love the books, the and out. I love the movie. The, the movie is... A, you, you, what works in a book does not necessarily work, work in cinema. They're different media. Yeah, like boringness. Yeah. <laughs> well, Steve, how about A Clockwork Orange? I mean, what do you think of that? Is that a case uh, where the movie was better than the book? Yes. I think <laughs> the so. movie was better than the book. Yeah. But, yeah. but that's Kubrick, man. I mean, Kubrick... Same thing with The Shining. I thought the movie the was Shining, better than the book. Say, yeah. But you know, Kubrick is just looking for some raw material when he picks those books. When he picked those books to to then write the movie that he want that he wanted. But before we get into that whole discussion, let's just uh, go on with our interview. Joining us now is Dr. Kenny Fader. Kenny, welcome back to the Skeptics Guide. Great to be here, Steve. And uh, Kenny Fader is a professor of anthropology at Central Connecticut State University and also the author of the book Frauds, Myths, and Mysteries. Right, Science and Pseudoscience in Archaeology. And he is a regular guest on our show. He's our skeptical archaeologist. Always a pleasure. Um, Good to be here. You're working off a bit of a cold, so you sound a little bit bit froggy, but you're brave enough to to do the interview anyway. I'm doing this intentionally. I'm trying to affect this sort of mysterious uh, sound, and uh, it's working. I think I'm really working it pretty well. Now, do you got the swine <laughs> flu or just the regular cold going on? I, I think it's monkeypox is what I've been telling all my students. Oh, no. Yeah, well, you know. Can't go flinging that around. Uh, no, yeah, really. Absolutely. <laughs> don't, don't say monkeypox. It's H1N2. Oh, is that what it is? Uh-huh. <laughs> I, I think it was Colin McEnroe who pointed out that H1N1, if you read it quickly, it looks like it's, it's Heidi. Heidi? <laughs> uh, yeah. <laughs> I've got the Heidi, man. So you've got to be careful, absolutely. <laughs> well, Ken, you're, you've come on tonight to talk to us about a couple of things, but we're sure. going to start by talking about the Connecticut Landmarks, which is an organization in Connecticut which is where a, we all live. A venerable organization, in venerable, fact. Venerable, yes. that is dedicated to uh, preserving landmarks in Connecticut. But they've recently embroiled themselves with some paranormal researchers. Tell us about that. Yeah, but it's a funny thing. Uh, you know, I was alerted to this by um, some friends of mine in the historic preservation community. And these guys are these are good people interested in preserving Old houses, um, uh, and, and you know, using Connecticut's history in, in ways that are, of course, useful and and, and helpful. But um, the concern is that some of these organizations are sort of getting on to this the, the uh, ghost hunter bandwagon and using that as a way to get people interested in old houses. 
and in a number of cases, they've actually employed paranormal researchers to come to these old houses where there are all these stories of people seeing weird things and hearing weird things, employing them, and then selling tickets so that people can come and hear about the results of these ghost hunting uh, uh, observations. And it's it's really as concerning a number of people that I'm aware that I know of who are 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 not happy with getting people interested in this sort of pseudoscience related to old houses. In a way, it's sort of a surrender. It's saying, hey, yeah. look, we can't get people interested in old houses for the, for good reasons, so let's try something that's not very good. And if, they get them in, if it gets them in the door, it's worthwhile. And that's, I think that's – I'm uncomfortable with that in any field of science. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Yeah, it's selling out. Yeah, exactly. And from what you're saying, it, it, so you, you hear about this thing happening, and you wonder, all right, so is somebody in the Connecticut Landmarks group, are they believers in the paranormal and interested in it, which is you know not inconceivable, or are they? is it really just calculated exploitation? They know exactly what they're doing, and they really don't care if this is legitimate or not. The people involved in this, I think, are good they're good citizens. They really are dedicated to the preservation of these houses and getting people interested in them. But when you read their own newsletters, and I'll tell you what, the, the newsletter describing why they were doing this, uh, Connecticut Landmarks, it said, we are, we are responding to trends and striving to be as visitor and media-driven in our programming as possible. Conducting yeah. paranormal investigations of our historic sites and re- reporting the results is what many of our visitors are clamoring for. Oh. So they come right out and say, well, we want to be media-driven, and that there's no irony in that. It's sort of disturbing. Yeah. Uh, if I if I walked into my classrooms and said, you know, I'm going to change my syllabi because I want I want the, my classes to be more media driven, I don't think that people would be really happy uh, with the education that they were getting, and I don't I don't think that's a good idea in science or history at all. Yeah, of course we agree with that. I mean, you know, they're they're trying to get people interested in historical locations. I understand that, and this is I guess filed under the pious fraud kind of category where right. the intentions may be good, but they're just selling their soul, right? For the, They're taking the easy path, right, right. essentially. Well, it's not, it's not an innocuous decision. I mean, they're basically, in my opinion, they're, they're doing it for money. You know, I don't know how much money this actually generates, but certainly it's, I think the, the mindset that I'm getting from the, the you know, what, what's been written is that it's getting people in the door. It's, okay, we'll make a little bit of money, whatever, but once you get people in the door, now they're going to join the organization, they're going to be actually interested in old houses, and maybe the, the ghost hunting part will not be the most important thing at that point, but it gets people interested. I hear this all the time in archaeology where people say, well, Eric Van Donneke and Ancient Astronauts, oh, sure, it's crap. But if people pick up that book, maybe they'll watch legitimate shows on National Geographic, wow. and maybe they'll take classes in archaeology. So that the, the notion here is, it's almost a bait and bait and switch. Yeah. yeah, let people think, oh, this is really cool, but then disabuse them of it. I really think that's a dangerous approach. I agree. I can't imagine that works. I mean, I, I imagine that the people that you attract. They're interested in the ghosts or the UFOs or Van Daniken or whatever, right. and then they're, you're essentially dazzling them with pseudoscience. That's going to do harm. That person's not going to suddenly become interested in real science. And I don't know if you guys have watched any of the Ghost Hunter shows that this is all sort of inspired by. Oh, sure. And, I mean, they're really they're so absurd that in a recent episode of South Park, they made fun of them. Yeah, yeah. I mean, these guys just sort of... <laughs> 
it, they walk around old dark houses and scare the hell out of one another, and, and there's nothing there. They never find anything. And the, I mean, the funny thing, too, is they talk about the organization that they hired and how they use sophisticated equipment. Yeah. And the sophisticated equipment includes a digital camera. <laughs> I mean, hey, hey K- Kenny, you clearly have not seen the video that we produced. That we put out in, uh, in yeah. July. Is that yeah? What is that? I have not seen. Huh? <laughs> yeah, you got to go. To, you got to go to youtube.com forward slash the skeptics guide, and you'll see we have a two part ghost hunter video that we made. It's a mock video. You're gonna the G hunter. You'll love it. G- yeah. yeah, it's a spoof ghost hunter video. But I, I watch some of those shows, and I can't imagine that even true believers find it interesting. It's so mind numbingly boring because nothing happens. Isn't it? I mean, it really is sort of funny. It's the equivalent. It's become the documentary equivalent of Seinfeld. You remember how they always would say with Seinfeld, there's a show about nothing. Yeah. About nothing. Yeah. Well, these are shows about nothing. There's another one on cryptozoology called Monster Hunters. Well, they never find a freaking thing. Yeah, right. But in fact, one of the photographs I saw online from one of these ghost hunting things in Connecticut was it was just it was really quite beautiful because it was exactly the the fo- the kind of photographs I've seen before, which is um, the the camera strap got yeah. in front of the lens and yeah. it's way out of focus. <laughs> I mean, it re- it clearly is that. It cl- if you've ever taken a picture, yeah. you yeah. recognize yeah. that, and it's out of focus. You go, but but it's described as some strange electromagnetic phenomenon that yeah. wasn't seen. Well, my God, I mean, you know, what are you going to do? Yeah, it's it's when when it's that level of sophistication. Uh, and yet people seem to be buying into it. These shows are on. They're on all over cable, and they have an audience. And guys, don't forget, that they're also, this is an edited down version of hours of video that they shot. This is the most interesting stuff that they can come up with. Oh. And it's still that unbelievably pathetic. But let's talk more about the Paranormal Research Investigations, or PRI. That's the group that the Connecticut Landmarks chose because they were the most professional you know so again the other downside is now they're lending their credibility to this fly-by-night paranormal investigation group you go to their web page and then you look at their evidence right so i always go first to the evidence sure right and of course as you say it's crap it's a it's a it's a a load of crap they have their gallery of their ghost photos which are camera straps flashback orbs right you know the orbs the orbs yeah floating lens flare yeah. And yes. like fingers. I mean, there's like black splotches <laughs> in front of the lens. Like someone's yeah. finger in front of the lens. Or Not it's very e- white, because the flash hit it, you know, it gets all white yeah. and blurry. It's, yeah. it's like low quality bad. I mean, one is a finger. You look at that thing. That is a finger in front of the lens. It's that's called it's called a ghost finger. But they have sophisticated <laughs> equipment. They use digital cameras, you know. And, and <laughs> Right, right. And and they have an they have an E V P recorder. Which is a tape what recorder. What is an EVP recorder, Steve? <laughs> it's a tape recorder. There you go. <laughs> and you can listen. They have samples of you know their audio paradola. Listen, there's a voice that says, I don't know. And it's just like this in the background, right? You know, just that <laughs> crap in the background. And, you know, sometimes you can hallucinate what you're supposed to hear, and sometimes you can't. It's, right. It's, it's bad even as examples of EVP go. It's just ridiculous. I used to do, I did an exercise in class, this is related to visual stuff, with Eric Von Donneken, where Von Donneken sees a cave painting and will interpret it as being an extraterrestrial alien. And what I show my classes is if you hide the caption so that you don't know what it is that Von Donneken is saying it is, you just show them the image and say, what is it? Nobody in the class says, guy in a space suit. 
But if you say, don't you see a guy in a spacesuit? Half yep. the class goes, oh, okay, I see it, yeah. Yeah, it's right. yeah that's right. Yeah, my, suggestibility. My favorite yeah. picture of an orb, though, is one where a guy with his digital camera was taking pictures of orbs. And in one of them, he's got his German Shepherd is in the picture. And the German Shepherd happens to be looking in the direction of the orb. And his argument was that he, the human, couldn't see the orb except through the camera. But the German Shepherd could see it. So that the dog was sensitive to the spirits in the room. <laughs> because the dog was looking in the right direction. Oh, my you know? God. Right. It's crazy. That's, so that was their evidence. They, you yeah, know, absolutely. Low-grade version of the usual crap that you see on all of these hundreds of sites now. That's just a travesty, in my opinion. We have a well, legitimate yeah. organization essentially lending their credibility to a pseudoscientific, I mean, just blatantly pseudoscientific group. It would be interesting. I mean, it, w- it will be interesting to determine whether or not this actually has any positive impact on their you know, their membership, if people start joining the organization. Well, let's turn to another topic, uh, 2012. Oh, my God, yeah. Uh, we've been chatting about this, too. You heard about I mean, that, have you? Yeah, absolutely, man. <laughs> I don't, I don't think Every day. On the planet has it. Oh. The, yeah. the movies just come out, and we chatted about that a little bit earlier yeah. in the show, actually. And I know you've uh, you told us uh, off air that you had just you've just written a op-ed that'll be coming out in the Hartford Current on Sunday. So the should day be on Sunday. Yep. That this goes out. Some of the 2012 claims are that the world's going to end on 2012 is based upon the Mayan calendar. Right. So we thought it would be fun to talk to a real archaeologist. Oh, there you go. To give us, rather than, yeah. again, like the fake information that the tabloids are interested in, tell us a little bit about what the real significance of the Mayan calendar is. Yeah. Hey, you know, the Maya were a sophisticated culture. and They, they had uh, a very sophisticated math system of mathematics. They were architects. They were engineers. They were, were agriculturalists. They built huge monuments. They actually had a number of calendars. And uh, the one that we're talking about here is this really long-term calendar. The Maya had days, just like we do. Only we have seven named days that cycle. They had 20. They didn't have a week. Their 20 days made up one of their months. And then they have 18 of those months made up a year, plus five extra days to get up to 365. And then they had periods of 20. They had a base 20 number system. So they had a period of 20 years. Like we have decades, they had a 20-year period. When we have centuries, they had a 400-year period. Uh, and ultimately, the difference between the Maya calendar and ours, when it comes right down to it, with this whole 2012 thing, is that our calendar is linear. That is, the years just keep on going up. Where the Maya calendar is cyclical. The Maya believed that at the that the that the calendar cycles, so even on this level of thousands of years. And that where we don't have a cycle that's 5,125 years long, the Maya did. Mm-hmm. And for the Maya, the the best way I think to describe it is. December 21st, 2012, the odometer of time turns back around to zero. That's the only thing the Maya said was going to happen. They did not say the world was going to come to an end. They didn't say anything tremendously momentous was going to occur. That odometer goes back to zero again. How do they distinguish between the various time periods then? What you've got here is that the the big Maya uh, um, system, uh, the the largest of the cycles, is called a bacton, and they believe that a cycle of time lasted for 13 of these. That's what's happening on December 21st, 2012. <laughs> it's the 13th bacton is ending, and when the 13th ends, it starts back at zero again. Uh-huh. So that 
and they believe that just like you know Bishop Usher said the world was created 4004 the Maya have a date 3000 something or other BC when they believe time started in this cycle and that when and that there was a cycle before that and a cycle before that and we will hit another one on December 21st in 2012 I mean the really cool thing is the Maya didn't say anything important was going to happen on, in, uh, on December 21st, 2012, but there actually is a Maya monument at the site of Koba that does predict the end of everything. Uh, they said when the time will end, then everything's going to become a cinder. But of course they have it, um, the, what, the, what the universe is 13 really? billion years old or something like that. The Maya predicted it, it's a 41 with like 28 zeros after it. That's how many years from now everything's going to end. So, I mean, I wouldn't sweat 2012, because as far as the Maya were concerned, you had billions upon billions upon billions, more years yet to go before everything cycles down. Well, great. So we got to deal with this again in, a, in billions of years? <laughs> Jesus. Uh, Excellent. It's Y2K all over again, only you know billions and billions of years from now. I thought, you know, the movie, I saw the movie, and the acting was horrible, and the script was <laughs> terrible, but man, they blew stuff up really <laughs> nicely. They sure did. But 2012 fits better on a movie marquee than 41 with 28 zeros after it, so, you know. I think I think they were just predicting the heat death of the universe. <laughs> Right. Although, although I think that's a little deeper, farther away than even that. Honor about that. They said based on their numbers, that's everything will be protons by then. So, if you're a proton, start worrying now. <laughs> but what about the planets and the galactic plane and the alignment of? Doesn't that all happen? Yeah. Yep. Absolutely. You know, every couple of years we get this whole thing about syzygy, right? Where all these things are going to uh, line yeah. up and, and everything's going to fall in. What well, hasn't happened yet? So, based on our, our sample size here, I, I think is big enough that we can probably conclude that uh, gravity is not going to somehow be subverted and everything's going to fall in on us or on the center of the Milky Way or whatever. I, you know, what I want to do? I want to have a website that allows people who really believe the end of everything is coming to sort of unburden themselves with all their worldly possessions, yes, yes. You know, their money and stuff, and then they can just send it all to me and, and, and you know get rid of all that guilt for having all that good stuff when the world is coming to an end. And, you know, and I'll just keep it all. And if it's all coming to an end, they're not going to need it anyway. Well, it's sort of like, you know, when the, 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 the transcendental meditators all said that they could levitate. I, I, you ever ask one of these guys to, like, jump off a building? They prove it. I mean, they're all jumping up and down on trampolines. Sure, that's easy. How about actually putting it, you know, putting your life in danger? I know most of them aren't going to do that. None of them are going to do it. So, I mean, it's, it's for my money, it's the, the whole 2012 thing is like, you know, coming home one day and finding somebody in your basement with a calendar pointing to December 31st and saying, that's it. It's toast because you turn the page and there's nothing left. You know, just walk them down to Barnes and Noble and have them look at the calendar for the next year, and then, then perhaps they'll be disabused of it. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's absolutely much ado about nothing. And I don't, I don't, I don't know. I mean, with Y two K, there there seemed to be a lot of anxiety in the public. My sense is there's not that much anxiety in the public about this, really. Uh, maybe I'm too insulated now. I don't know, but obviously enough people are harassing NASA about it because haven't they put up a website specifically to respond to the kinds right. of fears that are being promulgated in the popular media? So right. I don't know. I mean, yeah. there are there are loopy people who are going to be worried about practically everything. Uh, whether this is going to push some people over the edge, I don't know. The people who probably get the most charge out of this, of course, are the Maya, who are I don't you know. 
I have a, a, a colleague of mine who's a Mayanist. She's an anthropologist who has lived among the Maya. She speaks the language. And her hope is that the Maya, who are a pretty poor, beleaguered minority at this point, that they take full advantage of this and, you know, Work it. sell T-shirts yeah, or whatever. Right? <laughs> I imagine the tourists are going to flock down to Tikal and Chichen Itza and all these places to see it all come to an end, I guess, in 2012. So... If the Maya can make some cash out of it, it's all right. worthwhile, I guess. Yeah, some people don't realize the Maya are still around. Oh, gosh. Gotcha. Oh, yeah, yeah, the civilization you know, has collapsed, but the Maya people still exist, and... And there's even some cultural continuity, right, with the language and everything. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. A lot of religion, especially, is actually is a, com- a combination of Roman Catholicism and Maya spirit. So it's a, it's a really interesting religion. And yes, the language continues, not the written language, the spoken language. Well, Kenny, it's always a pleasure to have you on the show. I hope you start to feel better. Yeah, I, I think, you know what, I'll, I'll feel better. And then by the next podcast I do for you, I'll work on this voice again, and we'll see what we can do. Well, this is the second time in a row I think you've been on. You've been sick while you've been I, I, I don't, I, You know, it has something to do with you guys. I don't know, as soon as I hear about it. How do yeah, well, could be that. I think it's it's all Courtney's fault. So, well, you know, we, we already discussed that. <laughs> <laughs> All right, take care, Kenny. Hey, thanks, thanks a lot, guys. Yeah, hey, Happy Piltdown, man. Dude. Thank you. Yeah, we, we have a party at my house, actually, yeah. Good night. Right, bye-bye. Bye. It's time for Science or Fiction. Each week, I come up with three science news items or facts, two real and one fake, and then I challenge my panel of skeptics to tell me which one is the fake. Everyone ready? Mm-hmm. Let's do it. Yes. Uh-huh. Let's go. Here we go. Yeah. Hi. <laughs> Item number one, biologists have discovered a method to induce photo switching in a species of worm so that it becomes paralyzed when exposed to ultraviolet light and then unparalyzed when exposed again to visible light. Item number two, programmers have developed PC software that uses the optical mouse sensor to detect bacterial food contamination. Item number three, astronomers have discovered two extrasolar Earth-sized objects with oxygen-rich atmospheres. Rebecca, go first. Oh, man. <laughs> uh, okay. So I can I can see being able to paralyze a worm because worms are very sensitive to light. They don't really have eyeballs, right? So they can only really tell light from dark. So maybe there's something about ultraviolet light that would paralyze them. <laughs> so I'm going to say that that one's plausible. The idea of developing software that uses optical mouse sensors to detect bacterial food contaminants is weird because I don't understand at all how that might work. I I don't know. That's bizarre. Uh, But discovering two Earth-sized objects uh, outside of our solar system with oxygen-rich atmospheres, um, that seems crazy to discover, too. Jeez. I have no idea. I haven't read any of these. I'm a bit at a loss here because they all seem sort of plausible, but I'm not really sure. So I'm just going to take a stab in the dark and say that the uh, fiction is the idea of using an optical mouse sensor to detect bacterial food contaminants. Okay, Jay. So this thing with the the worms and the light, I mean, that is so, that's like that game you played when you were a kid. You remember that? Red light, green light? Yeah, but yeah, and you, you know, we, we used to actually play it where you turn the lights on and off for real. Right, so this is okay. ultraviolet light, visible light. 
but but nobody would lose (laughs) okay so i'm thinking how are they paralyzing these worms with the light what is it doing that's if that's if that's true that's a there's a must be a really interesting mechanism there i think the uh the one with the the pc software that uses the optical mouse to detect bacteria and food that's seems legit okay and us finding two extrasolar earth-sized objects with an oxygen-rich atmosphere you know okay where are they how far away are they right they're outside of our solar system that's the only clue we get so they could be anywhere why why what's so complicated about that with with rich oxygen atmospheres that must be the thing right bob yes okay so uh that'd be pretty kick-ass two when how close did they find these two together i don't know too many questions I can't ask right now. I'm going to say that um, that that last one's the fake. The extrasolar objects. That's right. Okay, Evan. Um, I think the extrasolar objects one is uh, science. I also believe that the one about the worms is science, which only leaves the optical mouse and the detecting of bacterial food contamination. I believe that one's fiction. Okay, Bob. Uh, the photo switching worm, I, I could kind of, I guess I could buy that, although I suspect they would have to do some uh, genetic tweaking to get that to work. I don't think right out of the ground they're going to be doing that. Let's see, the optical mouse, geez, I wouldn't, just would not think that an optical mouse could be adapted to do that purely from a resolution standpoint. So it makes sense that you could adapt it to detect things because that's kind of what it's doing. But bacteria, I mean, maybe if it was a big big bacterial uh, colony, perhaps. Two extrasolar, no, not just one, but two of these Earth-sized objects. Why are you calling them objects? Oxygen-rich. I, I don't know why, how I could not have come across that. That's pretty, pretty, pretty big thing. But it just seems a little bit too blatant to me that uh, something here, I suspect something here, that not, it's not what we think. Uh, but what the hell could it be? I just don't know why, how I could have missed that. So, um... Hmm. I think I'm going to go with the crowd a bit here and say that the optical mouse one. I think that's going to be. I think that's going to be the fiction. I love being a trendsetter, especially when I don't have a clue what I'm saying. Right. <laughs> well, that's okay. Well, so you all agree that biologists have discovered a method to induce photo switching in a species of worm so that it becomes paralyzed when exposed to ultraviolet light and then unparalyzed when exposed again to visible light is science, and that one is in fact. Pretty interesting science. Cool. Yay. Awesome. Yeah. Pretty neat. This is, they did this research in a very tiny worm called C. elegans, and it's a trans- Kind of important. It's a transparent worm. They feed it a chemical called dithyenylethene, and when they do that, uh, and they shine the light on the worm, now so the, the worm has this stuff in it, it's transparent so the light can get to it. It changes the chemical uh, structure of this of this substance, and it, the substance turns blue, so the worms turn blue, and they become paralyzed. And they stay that way even when you turn off the ultraviolet light. When they turn on the visible light, they turn back to transparent, and they become unparalyzed. Wow. And it said many of them even survived this process, so I guess some of them didn't survive the process. <laughs> so they still haven't figured out the mechanism by which this paralyzes the worms. But... I found more interesting is just the fact that you know there are these classes of, of substances that biologists have that can be used as photo switches. We can you know change them by shining different frequencies of light on them. 
for example, this could be used to um, attack certain kinds of cancer cells, for example. So this is one of those things where it's kind of a basic tool of research and manipulation. If you could figure out really interesting ways to use it, you might be able to do some cool stuff with it. Um, I guess we'll take these in order. Let's go on to number two. Programmers have developed PC software that uses the optical mouse sensor to detect bacterial food contamination. Uh, Jay thought that one was science. The rest of you thought that one was fiction. And that one is the fiction. Yay. Sorry, Jay. But this is based upon a story, I don't know if anybody read it, of uh, what what, uh, some researchers have done is they've used an optical mouse sensor to detect forgeries, specifically counterfeit two-euro coins. Apparently, in Europe, the most common counterfeited coin is the two-euro coin. And what they were able to do was build a little device. Now, you can't do it with your mouse, right? This isn't a software thing where you move your mouse over the thing. They just they used the sensor to build a detector that can detect the surface of these coins and detect a genuine coin from a forgery. The two euro, really? Isn't that sad? Shouldn't our criminals be aiming higher? I know, two huh. euro? I mean, come on. Steve, doesn't that mean that they're just bad forgeries? I don't know. The team used... A, a optical mouse sensor with a 30 by 30 pixel resolution, but they said that the minimum would be 15 by 15 pixels. So that's actually the higher end optical mouse sensors. A low end one wouldn't work. They said that the infrared and LED based ones were better than the laser ones because the laser really? ones would be, yeah, I guess the, they would provide images that are too wide. I guess they don't have the resolution. So interesting use of an off the shelf yeah. bit of technology, which means that. Astronomers have discovered two extrasolar Earth-sized objects with oxygen-rich atmospheres is science. Wow, what yeah. the hell are you talking yeah. about? Bob, you hit, hit upon it. I, used the, I had to use the word objects because they're not planets. Ah, what do you think Earth-sized there are? objects. Oh, wait, let me think then. If they're Balls, asteroids. Uh, oh, space stations. oxygen-rich. But we were talking about neutron star atmospheres yeah. recently. Wow. These are oh. white dwarfs. Excellent. Check it out. Yeah, so they said oxygen rich. Almost all white dwarfs have hydrogen and/or helium envelopes, but they found two that have a significant amount of oxygen, oxygen-rich spectrum in the surface of these white dwarfs, and they're they're small, they're Earth-sized. Uh, again, re- remnants of of burned-out stars. Very cool. So they're not planets. They're not planets. They're objects. Yeah, yeah, so right. probably not any life on these things. But oxygen is an element that can be made inside of stars. I mean, just prior to, you know, a, a supernova, right? Just in the normal life cycle of a star. Right, yeah. They, they, do, um, they do produce oxygen. Yeah. Otherwise, it wouldn't, it wouldn't be in a, really in a, in a white dwarf. Right, right. Yeah, so I thought I was hoping to catch people up on the object versus planet thing. You didn't. Yeah. Ha-ha. I mean, except for Jay. <laughs> no, you guys did a good job, especially for not having read any of these. Yeah, but I mean, I'm telling you, I'm blowing statistics out of the water here. Like, how can I Jay, possibly? It's Psy be- missing. Wasn't Jay doing worse than Chance? Evan, t- tell us about who's that noisy from last week. All right. Well, shall we play it for the listeners? I think so. Sure. Here it, here it is. So her idea is not a fortuitous concurrence of atoms, but rather to show intelligent design in nature. Second aim is to rescue from the degradation the archaic truths which are the basis of all religions. And that's what the secret doctrine is about. And that was, in fact, a gentleman by the name of Christopher Holmes. Are you guys familiar with 
Christopher Holmes. Yeah, he made a bunch of pornos in the 70s. Yeah. No. (laughs) No, Christopher Holmes is a... Well, I'll read it from his his biography about his... uh, Right off of his website. He's a he's a professor uh, with degrees in clinical psychology from the University of Waterloo. Uh, he taught at York University in Toronto for a while, and over an 11-year period amidst controversy, he had he was doing investigations of mystical and spiritual psychology, science, and psychic phenomena. He runs uh, some sort of organization called the Institute for Mystical and Spiritual Science. Hmm. Yeah, sounds like Is a real that winner. Possible? You can check him out at his website, zeropoint.ca. Is that a reference to Zero Point Energy? Yeah, and a bunch of other stuff. Free energy, too. Oh, he talks about 2012, and he talks about, uh, and he's a proponent of intelligent design. So Rebecca was right. The guy, he's crazy. Yeah. You could hear the crazy in his voice. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he's uh, he's uh, he's definitely operating on a different frequency, I would say, and has some pretty interesting thoughts about things. So, interesting. Anyone get it right? Oh uh, yeah, actually, someone got it right pretty quickly. It was Sea Otter from the message boards. Mm. Although there were a lot at right, it, it took a while for somebody else, I think, to guess that it was Christopher Holmes. There were other guesses: Jordan Maxwell and James Allman, and and several other names were mentioned. So. But it was, in fact, Christopher Holmes. So good hmm. job, Sea Otter. And what do you got for this week? All right. I like this week's because, well, you'll hear it. And I hope you enjoy it as much as I did. Here it is. I now the truth. The scientist. It's the scientist. He's the source. He gave us his soul. Okay, so there you have it. Thank you, Evan. Good luck, everyone. So we got a couple announcements this week. First, we're going to play a song by George Rapp. Let's hear it now. Are your friends telling you that your lack of a love life is because Mars isn't rising in the house of Jupiter and that it's just like a Sagittarius to question things? Have Suzanne Summers and Jenny McCarthy become the sole source of medical advice for your mother-in-law? Have you had to argue the fact that the efficacy of coffee enemas has not been proven by science? Has the use of the evolution is just a theory argument driven you to the point of telling your co-workers to... Okay, stop using gravity then. As dealing with dowsers, arguing with anti-vaxxers, harping on homeopathists, quarreling with collations, squabbling with Scientology, and bickering with Bigfoot left you wondering, what can I do to fight the woo? Then head on over to the James Randi Educational Foundation at www.randy.org and contribute to the Season of Reason fundraising campaign by clicking on the Donate button. Every dollar you give helps fight Woo the world over. Don't just get frustrated. Get involved. Donate at www.randi.org. That was uh, a great song by George Rabb. George! Have you guys well done, gotten George. your JREF Capital One Visa card yet? No, not yet. Okay, no, well, I haven't, Steve. If you go to the JREF site, and again, we'll, we'll, we will have links, 
Uh, you can see um, the James Randi Educational Foundation Capital One Visa card. There's a picture of James Randi on there. If uh, you sign up for that card and use it at least once before the end of December, the JREF will get a $50 donation. And as you use the card, you know, there's a little uh, a VIG goes to the JREF. So it's just a way of donating to a nonprofit organization painlessly, right? Because it's, it's just you're using your Visa card, and Visa essentially is making the donation to the JREF. So click that link and get your card. And another, another announcement, it was brought to our attention that it's the time of year for the podcast awards. So I bring up the podcast awards because there are actually several skeptical podcasts in the running this year. And it would be really nice if skeptical podcasts could have a good showing. It's uh, podcastawards.com. And the nominations and voting is open until November 30th. You could actually vote once per day. And in the people's choice category is Skeptoid from Brian Dunning. In the best video podcast, there's actually um, two that I oh, that are that are somewhat skeptical. There's Scam School and Mr. Deity. Yep. Uh, in the education category is the Skeptics Guide. Um, also, Astronomy Cast is in that category, and Skeptoid again. And then in the Health and Fitness category is Quack Cast by Mark Chrislip. And in the Science category is Skepticality by Derek and Swoopy. So that's a lot of. Our, yeah, that's our awesome. skeptical friends in the in the final running. So that's a nice sampling. Yeah. Yeah. If you go out, go to podcastawards.com. Vote early, vote often, as they say. I think it could be a good boost for skeptical podcasting. I'm voting right now as we podcast. Great. <laughs> so I'm multitasking. So Jay, what do you got for a quote this week? I have a quote, Steve. Okay, Jay. This is a quote from Donald Foster, and he's a writer and professor at Vassar College, and he wrote. No one who cannot rejoice in the discovery of his own mistakes deserves to be called a scholar. Donald Foster. <laughs> <laughs> That's it? What? You, you going to change it up this week? Yeah. No, well, you want to, you know, I'll yell it if you want. Donald Foster! <laughs> <laughs> yeah, what if Professor Foster was listening to the show and was yeah. looking forward to hearing his name spoken in that, that way that you do? Say it, Steve. That imbecile scream that I do. That Imbecilic, I think. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> a rare form of the word. Well, thanks for joining me again this week, everyone. Good night, everybody. Oh, thank you, Steve. You're, Steve, you just week. make this so much fun, man. Oh, you guys make it fun. Oh. It's one big happy family. Oh, definitely. All right, let's play World of Warcraft. Right. Yeah, let's go. And until next week, this is your Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe is produced by the New England Skeptical Society in association with the James Randi Educational Foundation and Skeptic.org. For more information on this and other episodes, please visit our website at www.theskepticsguide.org. For questions, suggestions, and other feedback, please use the Contact Us form on the website or send an email to info at theskepticsguide.org. If you enjoyed this episode, then please help us spread the word by voting for us on Dig or leaving us a review on iTunes. You can find links to these sites and others through our homepage. Theorem is produced by Kineto and is used with permission. Problem.